Iowa Windows and Doors of Wisconsin's energy-efficient windows keep the cold outside where it belongs, lowering energy bills. Get 0% interest up to the year 2029 if you book by January 31st. Visit PellaWI.com. Certain restrictions apply. Management Studios at the Avenue. It's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the Old National Bank Talk and Text Line. Old National Bank. Get old. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. I, I thought that interview that Greg Matzik conducted with Dwayne Wade was just absolutely fascinating. Now, it's, it's no secret if you're a regular listener, you know, I'm graduate of Marquette University Law School, and I remember watching Wade play. I have a very, very dear friend. I'll name check him. His name is Jack Kircher. Jack is a legendary, and I do not, I, I do not understate it when I say that, law school professor at Marquette. He was my law school professor and a very, very dear friend. And he, Marquette undergrad, Marquette uh, Law School, he was a teacher there for decades and decades. If you're familiar with the movie The Paper Chase and the John Houseman character, Kingsfield, well, my friend Jack was was Kingsfield to you know generations of, of Marquette law students, and he, he's my friend. And he had season tickets to the Marquette basketball games, and he he invited me on a a regular basis. And they were they were great seats, and they were like the fifth row. I would have never been able to afford them at the time. And I can remember watching Dwayne Wade play. People forget that Wade really only played two years at Marquette. His first year, he when he was a freshman, he was academically ineligible. They had this thing called Proposition Forty Eight, um, but but he worked really really hard, and he got himself eligible. And then he played his sophomore and junior years for Marquette. And I can remember again. I, I watched these games from like the fourth or, or fifth row. They were just tremendous seats and there's no question in my mind you could tell Dwayne Wade was was the most talented college basketball player that I think I I saw in person clearly on on a regular basis but what was so impressive to me about Dwayne Wade is he he got better he he really learned how to play the game I I can remember that the first year which was the 2001-2002 season I mean he, he scored about 18 points a game and led Conference USA with steals and things like that. And you could tell he was an incredibly talented player, but he really didn't have a, like a fully developed kind of game. And I can remember you know, he was just so incredibly talented, and he'd drive to the basket and things like that. But a, a lot of times the other team would, would know that, and they didn't think he had a jump shot, so they, they, they'd take charges and things like that. And he was in foul trouble and stuff like that. The second year, when he played for Marquette, he came back and, you know, he averaged, I think, what was it, like 22 points a game. So only five points more a game. But he was so much more well-rounded as a player. He worked and worked and worked to make himself better. He developed this little, like, jump shot. So instead of driving to the basket and drawing the charge, what he would do is he'd pull up from 10 feet and he'd make the shots. It was just, it was incredible to watch that maturation. And then it was just a pleasure to watch him when he went to the NBA as his game got better and better and and better. And and that is what's so very cool. Sometimes you see these very talented players, these incredibly talented athletes who don't get better. Giannis is a classic example of that. If you look at, at how Giannis was, and, and what his skill level was when he came to the Bucks, what, eight years ago or so. And then you, you watch him play now. And I'm not saying he wasn't incredibly talented eight years ago, but you watch the way that he has developed his game 
has turned himself into, if not the best basketball player in the world, one of three or four of the best basketball players in the world. He just kept getting better and better and better. And I just have such incredible respect for that because it's something that we, we should all strive to accomplish for accomplish and that is that we always want to get better and better and better it doesn't matter whether you're a basketball player or an attorney whatever you want to always learn and get better and Dwayne Wade was just a classic example of that okay we have a lot of ground to cover on today's program and yeah we are going to talk about Alec Baldwin in just a little bit but I want to start off with an update on a story that we spoke about yesterday and I guess a, a more fundamental question If you're a regular listener, you know that I'm just so very frustrated with the senseless deaths that go on on the streets in in Milwaukee, the city of, the county, and in southeastern Wisconsin. So much of this is brought about by people driving in an incredibly reckless fashion, and sometimes the people who are driving recklessly kill themselves. Other times they end up killing other people, but it's just this unacceptable level of death. And you had another one of these situations that happened Tuesday morning, it was a a crash near Sherman and Villard um, that happened about 1145 Tuesday morning. Now, the way this was originally reported was that an SUV traveling at a high rate of speed blew through a stop sign and hit and killed a car driven by an 18-year-old man named Demarius McRae who had just purchased the car on Sunday and was leaving the DMV after getting it registered. So the initial reports that the medical examiner had come out with said the SUV had blown through the red light and had hit the vehicle driven by McRae. McRae dies. After the impact, the people in the car, there were four people in this SUV, they get out and they they run away. They, They flee. One of them comes back and ends up being arrested. The Milwaukee police have modified that statement. And what they've said is what what really happened is they, they believe both cars were speeding, but the car driven by the man who was killed, McRae, that car is the one that ran the red light and got hit by the SUV. Okay, so that's... That that's a major change. Now, the guy that was driving the SUV is still in a lot of trouble because, well, there's a couple factors. First of all, um, they, they left the scene of the accident. Now, one <clears throat> ended up coming back, so maybe that's a mitigating factor. But the other thing that is relevant here is the driver of the SUV, young man himself, did not have a driver's license at the time he hit the vehicle driven by McRae. So if you got this straight, McRae is in the wrong to the extent that he's apparently blown through a red light, speeding. They think the other car was speeding. Guy slams into McRae's vehicle. McRae dies. The driver, again, putting aside the question of how fast he was going, the driver had the right of way. But it turns out he did not have a driver's license. And that, of course, you know, opens you up to, because there was a death, all sorts of potential criminal liability. And uh, there was an interview on Channel 4 last night. The father of the 18-year-old who was arrested for hitting the vehicle driven by McRae, he's the father saying, hey, this is, you know, I, this is un- unfair. I mean, I feel really sad about this. But, um, you know, it, it's not fair to come down on my son like, like this. I mean, he had the right of way, et cetera, et cetera. 
And one of the questions the reporter on Channel 4 asked, they said, well, well, wait a second, your, your, your kid didn't have a driver's license, right? And the father said, yep, he's 100% guilty of driving without a license, but that's it, trying to hurt somebody, trying to take their life. No, that is not him at all. And so the 18-year-old who's driving without a license, is, is, there's charges that are pending against him. This got me thinking because when we talk a lot about the reckless driving and things that, that go on, I think one of the undercovered stories is how many people are actually out there driving without a driver's license, on a revoked driver's license, on a suspended driver's license, over and over and over again. And it's interesting because I spent about 20 minutes this morning <clears throat> trying to see if I could find numbers on this. And the numbers I'm finding are old. Um, about seven or eight years ago, nearly 114,000 licensed-related convictions were, were issued. And that was pretty much the same, again, seven years ago. So you have at least 115,000 people in Wisconsin who were arrested and convicted, this is convicted, of either operating while suspended, operating without a valid license, or operating after revocation. The numbers nationwide estimate, and I'm looking at one of these studies, that say that drivers without a valid driver's license are responsible for about 20% of all automobile accidents in the United States, and um, they estimate that unlicensed drivers cause about 8,400 deaths per year in the United States. And part of the problem is that while most of us would never consider driving without a valid driver's license, what happens is if you get caught driving without a valid driver's license or on a revoked license or on a suspended license, unless you're involved in an automobile collision that kills somebody or creates, you know, injures somebody badly, as a general rule, there's not you're not going to be held responsible. You're simply going to be given a ticket, sent back, told to pay the fine, and as a result of that, there, there's almost no consequences because a lot of people, they're, they're not going to pay the fine at all. So you've got this enormous number of people who are driving out there without valid driver's licenses. And I would argue that if you're driving without a valid driver's license, chances are you're probably driving without insurance on your car and things like that. And I think you pose a menace to the community. More importantly, if we let this stuff go on, why bother having driver's licenses at all? I mean, seriously, if we're not going to deal with this problem. So I was trying to think about all morning, okay, what, what, what do you do? I, I don't know that you. it's reasonable to say every time you catch somebody driving without a, a license, without a valid excuse or something like that, and I don't know what a valid excuse would be, it's not reasonable to say you're going to put them on, in jail for, for six months. I, I don't think that's reasonable. But at the same time, there's got to be some penalties. So let's discuss this. What if every time somebody gets caught driving without a valid driver's license, driving while suspended, driving without the license, driving while revoked, what if the general practice was the car gets towed, the car gets seized, and the only way you get that car back is by going, if it's your car, you go down there and you show that you've got a valid driver's license, that you've now gotten your driver's license back. If you're driving somebody else's car 
okay, that's fine. The owner of that car has to go down. They've got to pay to get it back. And maybe by making them pay to get it back, they'll be more reluctant to lend you that car the next time. What about towing the cars of people instead of just letting them drive off after you have accumulated, you're driving another car, the cops pull you over. What about just towing the thing and saying you're not getting it back until you could prove that you've got a valid driver's license? Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. What do you think about that? Would it help get people who don't have driver's licenses off the street and make people who don't have driver's licenses more reluctant to say, well, I don't have a driver's license. What the heck? I want to drive anyways. 855-616-1620. We discuss. 855-616-1620. Look, I'm trying to come up. I, I don't think you can lock everybody up. All right. I, I mean, I've made this argument that if for reckless drivers after the second reckless driving conviction, yes, you should start locking them up. But what about the the enormous number, certainly over 100,000, and, and that's probably small nowadays, of people who are driving around and are just are, those are just the ones that are caught driving without licenses. You can't lock all of them up. But what you can do is start impounding the cars and not giving them back until the person picks it up, pays the fine with their license, or the owner of the car goes down, proves they're the owner of the car, shows that they're licensed, and then pays it. And it, it might be unfair to say, oh, well, you're punishing the person that lent them the car, but I guarantee you, you're, you're not going to lend that person the car next time. Jeff, I think it's a great idea. Tow the car. Jeff, amen. Tow the car. Stop rewarding bad behavior. And all of us that obey the rules and have to carry uninsured insurance might go for the benefit. Jeff, I love the idea of towing the vehicle. With that said, I would feel it would simply be another law ignored, like how many curfew tickets get written. Well, that's fair, but at least it gives them more at least it gives them more tools. Jeff, I'm all for more accountability, but what if any one of us legitimately forgot our wallet at home? Oh, okay, I, I'm not saying, I, I'm talking about people who are driving, not that you don't have your driver's license with you. I'm talking about people who don't have driver's licenses, who whose driver's license has been suspended or driver's license has been revoked or they're dri- they've, they've never had a driver's license period. Jeff, back in 92, I was hit by a guy who had no license, no title, no insurance. He says, let's settle this like men and not call the police. Both vehicles were drivable. I called. Um, he got tickets. Um, at the end, my insurance would not collect for him from the deductible. This was a guy who was in his 30s. Jeff, it seems reasonable. It also means it probably won't happen, at least in Milwaukee. Jeff, 100%. I got hit by an unlicensed driver two weeks after I paid off my car. She had no insurance. She didn't speak English. Um, I just knew that I was shafted. Jeff, my brother is a police officer in Milwaukee. He says that about 50% of the vehicles that he ends up stopping are cars that the drivers do not have valid licenses for. Jeff, at night, I listen to the police scanner, and you can't believe how many people they pull over um, that have no licenses or um, have never had a license. I think the percentage you mentioned is way higher than was stated, but I do agree with you totally with the cars. Rich in Kenosha. Rich, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff, this is a very timely uh, topic. My wife was just involved in an accident about two weeks ago, and the person ran a stop sign. They didn't have insurance, 
and they um, they didn't ha- they were driving on a suspended license, and it cost me to get my vehicle fixed. It cost me my full deductible, even though I had uninsured motorist. They got three tickets, and 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 that was it. I mean, I probably paid more for my deductible than what they had to pay for the tickets. Right. And and you know that they're probably back out on the street driving that same car today because there's no dis- it, it, even if they pay the tickets, they're still out there just doing it again because if they get caught the next time, they're just going to get another ticket. It's not stopping them from doing that. No, without without a doubt. I mean, they they were on a suspended license, no insurance and running a stop sign. I mean, and and my wife was trying to do her best to avoid it, but it was impossible. And like I said, it cost me $500 because of the state of Wisconsin, your uninsured motorist doesn't pay your deductible. And right. You know, that's just 500 bucks out of my pocket. Yeah. No, got it. No, thanks for the call, Rich. You're, you're absolutely right. Hey, Jeff, last year I was on East Oklahoma Avenue, and the vehicle in front of me was going very slowly at the green light. He slammed on his brakes in the middle of the intersection. Unfortunately, I bumped him in the rear. As we pulled over, I soon realized the driver was 14 years old. Obviously, no license. His father had sent him out for milk and eggs. The police arrived, and get this, I was cited for following too close. I was in shock and I'm frustrated. I'm still in shock. Well, okay, if you decided... You know, that guy's following too close, you give him the ticket. But if you've got a 14-year-old who's driving a car, obviously no license, what do you do? You impound the car, you tow the car to the lot, and then if Dad wants to get the car back, Dad, if he's the titled owner of the car, he's got to go down to the impound lot, he's got to pay the fine for towing, he's got to pay the fine for, you know, having somebody un- who, you know, whatever the fine is for, you know, driving without a license, pay those fines before you get the car back. And I guarantee you in that circumstance, maybe Dad, maybe, will think twice before he sends his 14-year-old kid out on a milk and egg run. Mary Jo in the O Show. Mary Jo, you're on WTMJ. See, um, I, I, I get that, and it's a good idea to take their cars away from them, but we don't have a boneyard probably big enough for all of them cars. But also, I have a question. How did he get his, dry, how did he get his car registered if he didn't have a driver's license? Well, I don't know. <clears throat> no, okay, Th- thanks for the call, Mary Jo. No, the, the, the guy that was killed was coming back from the DMV registering his car. So he, he had a driver's license. The person that hit and killed him did not have a driver's license. Now, I don't know what I, – I don't have the background. They, they haven't released the information about whether you – know, who the car was registered to or, or whatever. So I, I, I don't know that. But, no, the, the guy that was killed had a driver's license. The guy that was driving through the intersection and was involved in the collision – who then subsequently took off, came back to the scene. He did not have a driver's license. So that's how it all works. Jeff, great idea to tow cars of unlicensed drivers. Wouldn't be able to handle all the cars. Maybe need to build an additional holding lot. Well, yeah, you know, okay, Northridge. I, I'm being flipped there. But I, I, that's that's a minor problem. I mean, see, I, I think and the reason I bring this up is I think we have to start we have to start thinking outside the box. I hate that term <clears throat> because it's a cliche, but we have to start thinking outside the box and uh, as to how we deal with these these problems. And the truth of the matter is, I, I get it. You can't lock up everybody. All right? I appreciate that. And, and maybe you say, okay, well, driving without a license, that shouldn't necessarily be something that costs you your liberty. 
okay unless you hit and kill somebody or cause serious injury. Okay, but there still needs to be some penalty more than just giving somebody a citation that they're not going to pay and isn't going to discourage them from doing it again. I guarantee you, you start impounding the cars. Okay, you don't have a valid driver's license. Fine, or you're driving on a suspended license or your license was revoked. Sir, madam, out of the car. Um, we're going to call the tow truck. We're going to haul it up. If you want to get the car back, here's where you go. You have to pay your fines for this, and boom, you know, then you're off to the races. I guarantee if you do something like that, you will reduce the incidence of unlicensed people driving on the streets. And at the end of the day, for all the rest of us who follow the rules, isn't that a good thing? We're really on to something with this, and, and it's, we're, we're being swamped with, with texts. Jeff, I was critically injured by an unlicensed driver as a Milwaukee police officer, and after his release from prison, this individual is still driving without a license and receiving tickets in violation of his probation. My response was, it, it's just awful. We, we, you know, we, we have to be serious about this. And whenever I talk about this, I always get a text or a call from somebody saying, well, you don't understand. I mean, pe- people, have to, people have to get to work. You know, people have to drive. Maybe the person was going to work when they were driving without license. I don't care. I don't care. The reason we have people that have to have driver's licenses and have to play by the rules and have to be concerned that you don't amass too many points and have to have insurance, the reason we do that is to protect the rest of us. And I don't care. There's no justification if you don't have a driver's license for just cruising down the street in a car. And there needs to be consequences. So, very glad to have you with us. All right. The breaking news story is Alec Baldwin. Everybody knows Alec Baldwin, right? The very famous actor performed in, and he was in 30 Rock. He was um, in Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. You know, he's done a a number of of different things. Very, very outspoken politically as well. And uh, people who like Alec Baldwin like him a lot. And there's other people who just think he's a loudmouth jerk. But, you know, you can decide that for yourself. He is now a loudmouth jerk, though, who is facing criminal charges in connection with a, a move, a shooting that happened on the set of this low-budget western that he was filming in New Mexico in 2021. And just long story short, because I'm, I'm sure lots of you are, are familiar with what happened. He's apparently <clears throat> he's on the set. He's playing this western character, and at some point in time, the armorer—that's the the person who's responsible for for handling guns—gives him a gun. Um, and he's sitting in like on, on the set. He's in this like this church where they're going to be shooting, and he's he's practicing drawing the gun. The armorer tells him <clears throat> that the gun is cold, which means that it's been checked and there's no live ammunition in it. Now, he then he then draws the gun and points the gun at the cameraman and the the camera person and the director, and then. The gun goes off. We'll, we'll get to this, how the gun goes off in just a minute. And the, the camera person is hit and killed, and the director is, is, is injured as a result of this. Now, there's a huge investigation <clears throat> that ensues. They still haven't figured out how live ammunition 
got onto the movie set. And, and that's still, there, there's been this extensive investigation. And, and so th- this is, it's like one of the cardinal rules. You don't have live ammunition on the movie set. You've got like the blanks and, and whatever. But apparently in this case, somehow <clears throat> a number of, of real bullets got mixed in with the, the blanks, etc. All right. The other question, though, is how, how does the gun end up going off? Alec Baldwin, in what may go down as one of the stupidest, most irresponsible decisions ever made by a criminal defendant, he decides to give an interview a number of months ago with George Stephanopoulos of ABC News. And I think you can make a strong argument that this interview and a matter of fact, if you go back and check the tapes, I, I said at the time, I, I cannot believe that any lawyer would have allowed Alec Baldwin to go do this interview. Alec Baldwin goes and he says, I didn't pull the trigger. I, I, I did not. I would have never pointed the gun at somebody and, and pulled the, the trigger. Well, nonetheless, the gun went off. And Baldwin, he implied that there, there must have been some malfunction. I had the, the hammer cocked, and the, the, the gun just, just kind of went off. I did not intentionally pull the trigger. Well, the problem with that story is that the FBI gets involved in this, and they have one of their firearms experts come out, and they look at the gun, and they conclude that the gun could not have gone off. It could not have been fired unless Alec Baldwin had, in fact, pulled the trigger. So here you have him now doing this interview. No, no, no. I have no idea how this gun went off, but the FBI says we've examined this gun. This gun would not have fired were it not for somebody pulling the trigger. So what happened today is you've had criminal charges, involuntary manslaughter, have been brought against both the armorer, that would be the woman who was responsible for making sure that the gun was safe, and Alec Baldwin for pointing the gun, and the DA's theory is that they, they pulled the tri- he pulled the trigger because the FBI says the only way this gun would have gone off is if he did, in fact, pull the trigger. So the district attorney out there says, after a thorough review of the evidence and the laws of the state of New Mexico, I have determined there is sufficient evidence to file criminal charges against Alec Baldwin and other man members of the Rust film crew. On my watch, no one is above the law and everyone deserves justice. So both Baldwin and the armorer are going to be charged with two counts of involuntary manslaughter in connection with the, the death of, in this case, the, the photographer, the, the, the camera person. Now, in New Mexico, what is involuntary manslaughter? Well, there, there's, there's two types. I mean, murder is the premeditated taking of, of a life. You know, um, manslaughter is the unlawful killing of a human being without malice. So there's voluntary manslaughter, which is an intentional killing for which there was a mitigating circumstance. He's being charged with involuntary manslaughter, which consists of a killing that was unintentional, but it resulted from either recklessness or criminal negligence. So I think the argument that they're going to make is, from the perspective of the armorer, she's getting charged with giving him a gun that that had a, a live round in it. He's getting charged with involuntary manslaughter from pointing the gun at somebody and pulling the trigger even though he denies on the George Stephanopoulos interview that he did it. 
but the FBI, <clears throat> apparently the forensics say that's not happened. This gun does not fire unless you pointed at somebody and pulled the trigger. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. All right, let, let's tee this up. Do you think Alec Baldwin is getting a, a raw deal? Is he being singled out because he is a celebrity or is a charge like this appropriate? And even within the, the involuntary manslaughter, there's 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 two different they're, – they're both felonies, but one possible charge carries a much lighter penalty than the other. One carries um, 18 months in prison. The other, if they use this enhancer because there's a firearm involved or something, you could get, I believe, up to five years. 855-616-1620. Is Alec Baldwin being railroaded? Do you believe if the prosecution's theory is correct that this is an appropriate charge? We discuss in just a moment. Now, a couple of people are saying, well, no, 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 he, he didn't pull the trigger. His his fingers slipped, his thumb slipped, and the hammer he, uh, the hammer released, and that's what fired the, the gun. All I can tell you is the FBI said that looked at the gun has concluded that the only way this particular firearm could have fired is if somebody, and that would be Alec Baldwin, pulled the trigger. And, and that's, I mean, I, I don't claim to be an expert in firearms, but that's what the people who are expert in firearms say happened. From examining this particular gun, they say it couldn't have been one of the, you slipped, and the, the, the only way this could have happened would have been if Alec Baldwin pulled the trigger. So that's the basis for this. Now, it doesn't change the fact Alec Baldwin, nobody suggests that he knew that this was a live gun, but nevertheless, the theory is you, you don't point a gun at somebody and pull the trigger. All right, 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Jeff, I believe Baldwin was also the producer, which means the armorer was working for him and maybe even hired by him, and she was a bit inexperienced. She was very inexperienced. So I think he's responsible for more than just the gun going off. Um, uh, let's see. Jeff, I don't care for Alec Baldwin, but I think he's being charged for something that's not his fault. Someone else is responsible for bringing live ammo onto the set. How many people are bringing ammo onto the set? I would guess that just one person brings the blank ammo. And, and there, there's no argument about that. I mean, the, the FBI apparently and state authorities found like half a dozen live bullets, live rounds mixed in with all the, the dummy bullets, which is just mind-boggling to me. Bob in Greenfield. Bob, you're first. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Um, Hi, Bob. I believe um, you don't really have to have any knowledge of firearms to be an actor and hold a firearm. So, I mean, if if you have no um, knowledge of it, I don't know if he's owned a gun or shot a gun, it would be hard to uh, be able to tell the difference between live and um, a blank ammo. And, and you have that the armorer, which basically is the person or the agent that handles that as safety and, you know, guarantees that it's supposed to be um, blank ammo. And I, I think that person should uh, uh, take the the bulk of the blame. I mean, I, I don't really think he should do um, prison time. You know, he, he has well, that's no, a, but Of course, but Bob, that's a different question. Him. I guess my question is, do you think... 
let us assume the prosecution's theory is, is correct, that he's got this gun, he's been told that it's been checked, and it's cold. That's the term they use. But he pulls the gun out, he points it, and he pulls the trigger. I mean, that's their theory while he's – it's not even – it's not being filmed or anything. He's just kind of practicing drawing. If he, in fact, did that, do you think the act of – even though he believed that the gun had blanks in it, pointing the gun at the camera and pulling the trigger – should that be enough to hold him responsible? I don't think so. I mean, if if he was responsible for putting the blanks in and you know mm-hmm. securing that it was a safe weapon, you know, then yes. Uh, I mean, again, we don't know how much actual gun experience he has, or if he's ever fired a gun. Right. I mean, some of these, right. these. But I mean, this is my feeling. You know, I don't think he should sure. be held responsible. I think it's a good find, uh, big. I mean, well, and he's he's getting sued right and left. Okay, thanks for the call, Bob. I appreciate. I mean, that that's what you're going to have to wrestle. I mean, he, there's there's several lawsuits that are out there. They're also they're considering. Apparently, they're going to resume making this movie, and the the word is that he's going to pick up with his role in it. I I think that that's kind of mind boggling to me, Jeff. Wouldn't some of this depend on whether he was supposed to pull the trigger and shoot at somebody as part of the movie, or just point the gun at the other actor? The answer to that is 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 yes. And again, my understanding is, that, see, they weren't filming him. He was like practicing his draw. This this was not a hey. You're supposed to you know pull out the gun and and point the trigger and 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 pull the trigger and, and shoot the gun. That that wasn't part of what was going on. Now they, he was just like, I don't want to say playing with it because that that minimizes minimizes. But I think he was just practicing drawing the gun i don't at this point in time he he was not supposed to pull the trigger or cause the gun to go off it wasn't like it was part of the movie we're filming you pulling the trigger that that wasn't it this was during a break in some of the shooting uh let's see jeff there was an interview the cast of this movie and one of the people interviewed was a young lady who took the position of the armor during the course of the interview she said on camera up until yesterday i've never touched a gun in my life so she had no knowledge of what she was hired to do no knowledge of handling weapons alec baldwin has totally uh, um he's uh he was the producer and should be held accountable jeff if tom cruise is practicing flying a jet and pushes a button and a missile launches you think it's his fault who put him in the jet with live missiles well okay well i guess uh well i wouldn't put tom cruise in a jet with live missiles but if if he wasn't supposed to push the button to fire the missiles yeah, then I think that there might be accountability. Um, Jeff, what was he practicing for seeing what was going to happen coming up? He was going to pull the trigger at the camera. Um, maybe. Um, maybe. You never point a gun at anyone. Alec Baldwin was irresponsible. And remember, because of his actions, somebody is dead. An innocent life was cut short. Well, that's the, I mean, see, that that's the question. And that's what involuntary manslaughter is. You don't, nobody argues that he had an intent to, to kill this person. The question is, was his behavior reckless? And again, I think a lot of that determination is to Alec Baldwin. The armorer, well, the, the armorer, her responsibility is to check to make sure that the, there are not live bullets in there. She clearly failed in that responsibility. From Baldwin's perspective, putting aside the issue, are, are you responsible for hiring a, an armorer who 
wasn't up to speed. Putting that question aside, the issue is going to be, did he pull the trigger or not? And that's why I say Alec Baldwin, I think, seriously hurt himself when he went on that Stephanopoulos interview and said, nope, I, there, I, I, didn't, I did not pull the trigger a, at all because you're going to have a lot of firearms experts from the FBI who are going to come in. And my understanding is they're going to say, nope, the only way that particular firearm could have fired would be if he pulled the trigger. Now, I, maybe Alec Baldwin will have other experts that will dispute the opinion of the FBI, and, and that's a matter that's going to, I guess, come out at trial. Uh, let's talk to Nick in Madison. Nick, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. How are you doing? Good. What do you think? Hello? Yeah, go uh, ahead. Yeah, I, I, first of all, I, I don't like Alec Baldwin. He's a good actor. Uh, he is an obnoxious uh, political figure, but he's getting a raw deal here. You have to differentiate between a Hollywood set and what happens in just kind of normal life. If I take a hunting weapon out of my cabinet and I point it at somebody and I fire, that is an irresponsible and negligent act. In Hollywood, they point weapons and pull triggers all the time. I mean, look at every Rambo film that Sylvester Stallone ever had a gun in his hand and is pulling triggers, and it's supposed to look like you're firing a gun at somebody. He's firing a gun at somebody. Has every act that Sylvester Stallone ever committed along those lines where he pointed a gun at somebody and fired it, expecting it to be a cold weapon, not ever expecting it to have a live round in it, was that a negligent or reckless act? It's not. It's not criminally negligent. It's not reckless. There, unless he had some kind of warning or knowledge that there was that there might be a live round and there's no information that, make any, that that might be does it case. make any does it make any difference that he wasn't supposed to pull the trigger this wasn't a th- th- he wasn't actually shooting a scene he was kind of practicing does this, that make any difference I, i've seen no i've seen people when people practice shooting when people shoot in Hollywood, they pull triggers. We've always watched movies. They don't just stand there and not pull the trigger. They pull the trigger. Nobody on a Hollywood set would ever, ever, ever think that it's a dangerous act to do so because there should be no chance at all that a person that that's a person has a live round in the gun. If he does not have any knowledge, if he has no mental culpability with regard to there might be a live round in there, the fact that he's on a Hollywood set is like an extra guarantee, like there's not a live round in there. How could it be? Yeah. Nick, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. And that will be the argument they made. The, the only thing I would say in response is that in the same Stephanopoulos interview that I think is going to come back to haunt him, Alec Baldwin also said, he, he, first of all, he denies pulling the trigger. And he says, I would never point a gun at someone and pull the trigger. So, I mean, I, I don't know how they do it on Hollywood sets, but he was pointing it directly at the camera. So he's on record as denying pulling the trigger, not saying, hey, I pulled the trigger. I had I had no idea that this was that, that the gun was loaded. He's denying pulling the trigger. And again, if if the forensic evidence comes back and the FBI experts come back and say, no, he, he, he wasn't telling the truth. He's he's wrong. He pulled the trigger. That, I think, is going to cause him a lot of problems. In any event, uh, Alec Baldwin has now been charged with a crime in connection with the armorer, and we'll, we'll watch how this all plays out um, if, if, in fact, it does end up going to trial. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. 
Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. So very glad to have you with us. All right. You know, interesting, last night, uh, Greg Matzik was one of the people presiding over this Brewers event that was very, very well attended. I think one of the most interesting things that came out of it uh, was the fact that Willie Adamas, who is, you, you could argue that he is probably the best player the Brewers have now. Christian Yelich is the highest paid. But you can argue that, you know, Willie Adamas is right up there. Um, Willie Adamas has two more years of control that the team has over him before he could become a free agent. But this is this is the time where teams, if, if you want to secure long-term commitments for your players, th- this is where you do it. Because once they get closer, because now you can at least say, okay, look, here, we're, we're going to cut this deal. We're going to give you guaranteed money for X amount of years, and we're going to buy out your first couple of years of free agency. This is where you do it. If you let it go like another year, the player really has very, very little incentive to 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 sign with you. And you know, okay, I'll, I'll test out the free agent market. And one of the things that we've seen with the Brewers, with the exception of Christian Yelich, is that uh, they have a habit of seeing really good players leave because they can't afford to pay them and they're in that situation right now with uh with corbin burns brandon woodruff the two star pitchers and with with adamas so i think from the perspective of a lot of us who are brewers fans and that's how i I come at this i have a partial season ticket i'm a partial season ticket holder have been for years love the game love baseball love to see the brewers succeed was very disappointed in a lot of the moves that they made last year and quite candidly have been somewhat underwhelmed by what they have done in in this off season, and a lot of the stuff they've done looks like to me it's it's they've traded Hunter Renfro. Okay, that that's fine. They've traded Colton Wong. These look to me like things that they've done to kind of save money. All, all right, and and maybe clear the way for some younger players. That that's okay. But at the same time, okay, if you're saving money, are what what are you going to spend that that money on? And if you're getting rid of Colton Wong, or you're getting rid of Hunter Renfro, and the idea is we're going to try to amass some money because we want to go sign Willie Adamas, or we want to sign Corbin Burns, or we want to sign Brandon Woodruff to a long-term contract. I, I kind of get that because I understand that we're we're not the New York Mets. We're not the New York Yankees. You have to make some uh, some decisions there. But I thought one of the most interesting things that came out of this yesterday is Willie Adamas. Uh, and I've got a link to this. If you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620 Adamus says, ah, no, nobody's talked to me about, like, a contract extension. Haven't haven't heard anything. And I'm sitting there, and I, I have to admit, it, it. how can you not be trying to actively reach out to these players that are your core kind of superstar players and see if there is stuff that you can do to get them in the fold? And I, I will say this. I, I'm never too sympathetic when I hear major league franchises, whether it's the NFL, uh, which has a salary cap, so that's a limitation, or the NBA, and the Bucks have routinely, they pay a luxury tax because they exceed the, the salary cap to keep their players, or, or major league baseball teams, including the Brewers, I've never been too sympathetic when they, they plead poverty because, I mean, here's the deal, and this is what I said on, on Twitter, the current ownership group of the Brewers, Purchased the Brewers in 2004 for 223 million. As of last March, Forbes magazine says the franchise is worth at least 1.28 billion. So it's gained in value what like six times 
since you know they, they purchased it less than 20 years ago, and it's now worth over you know a billion dollars. They estimate 1.28 billion dollars. I, I think with that kind of appreciation in value. I think it's reasonable to expect the team to be aggressive in re-signing stars like Adamus, Burns, and, and Woodruff. And I guess that's just that's sort of how I look at this because it's kind of like saying, okay, I've got a house, and the house is appreciating in value, and I bought it for 250000 and now it's worth 700000 but I have to put on a new roof. Okay, well, yeah, you, you put on the new roof, but the, the, when you sell that house – you're still going to get a ton of money out of it. So even if you, even if a Major League Baseball team loses money in any one particular year, I'm here to tell you the, the owners are doing really, really well because the value of these franchises has appreciated so much. So I guess I look at this and say, you know, if, if you haven't started talking to a guy like Willie Adamas, why? Why would that be the case? Just asking, and you can check out the link to that if you follow me on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner six twenty. Okay, yesterday on the program we, we had a sort of a fun discussion about the Harley Davidson hundred and twentieth anniversary. It's going to be this July, and it got me thinking back to twenty years ago when you had the Harley hundredth, and we had a, a lengthy and I think kind of a fun discussion for people who were there. It was one of the the worst public relations moves I, I think in american business history because they were going to have the, this big concert the last day down at veterans park and they, they said okay we're going to they didn't announce what the lineup was going to be and it was going to be surprise guests and the okay here you've got a whole bunch of bikers and stuff and the word was it's going to be springsteen or it's going to be the stones or something like that and it, it turned out to be the doobie brothers and tim mcgraw and three songs by Kid Rock, but then the headliner was Elton John. And as I said yesterday, I, I love Elton. I mean, I think Elton John is a great performer, but Elton John and a bunch of Harley riders who have been waiting in extreme heat all day, it, it wasn't a, a good, it was not a good fit, and it, it just blew up in Harley's face, not because, again, Elton John, if you'd said, okay, Elton John's going to be the headliner, then people could have either decided whether to go home early or go to the show or not, but everybody thought it was going to be somebody different, and it turned out to be Elton John, who, again, you know, he, he you, know, you do Goodbye Yellow Brick Road into a crowd of tens of thousands of half-drunk Harley riders. It, it's it's just not going to go over. So, you know, we had an interesting discussion about that, and it's that's available in the podcast. Harley has learned from that, so there's no more surprises. They're announcing who it is that, that's performing, and they've been doing that since then, and I think that's smart. You can learn from your mistakes. So this year, the announcement is two nights of shows at Veterans Park. You can buy tickets for one night, or you can buy tickets for two nights. One of the nights, the show is going to be um, the Foo Fighters. They're going to be headlining on July 15th. The night before, July 14th, Green Day, the, the band Green Day, is going to be performing. And what I thought was interesting about this, and I, I mentioned it just in passing terms yesterday, and I've gotten just a, a, a huge amount of feedback on it, so I, I think it's worth discussing. The lead singer from Green Day is a guy named, uh, his last name is, is Armstrong, and perhaps you might remember him, Billy Joe Armstrong. This summer, he's, he's a very 
very well-known liberal activist, and he's campaigned for Democratic candidates over the years, and that's fine. He became outraged after the the Roe versus Wade decision came out last year, and he he's performing in Great Britain. He's in England, and he goes on this obscene tirade, uh, just trashing America and announcing that he is going to renounce his, his citizenship because America is so blanked up. If you if you want to see what he said in its entirety. You can follow me on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner 620. I've got a link to the, the video of, I think, the first night. He, he did it again a, a second night. My, my, my caution note is the language is really, really bad. I can't play any of it on, on the radio because every third word almost literally is, is the F word during this, this two- or three-minute tirade. But he's denouncing America. He's talking about how awful this country is. He's talking about how messed up th- this country is. He says he's going to renounce his citizenship. He's going to become a Canadian citizen. So this this is the band that Harley has chosen to perform for their 120th anniversary. Now, I understand that if you if you only go to shows featuring performers or bands who are something other than big-time liberals, you're not going to be going to too many shows. I, I, I get that. But in this particular case, this guy has gone complete, you know, full, you know, full-on Robert De Niro, you know, denouncing the, the country, and he's going to leave, he's going to renounce his citizenship. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Nobody's going to force anybody to buy tickets to, to the show. My question is, do you think there is going to be a backlash among potential Harley riders that this is the band that has been chosen to perform? 855-616-1620. We discuss in just a moment. Do you have the time to listen to me whine? That is, of course, that's Green Day, who's going to be performing. They're the headlining act at the Harley 120th celebration. That is on July 14th. The lead singer, Billy Joe Armstrong, and if you want to see his anti-American, I think that's a fair way to describe it, tirade, you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner 620 I've got a link. Be prepared to hear lots of F words. But he, he's, he's, he's the lead singer, and he's the performer. I... I think it's an interesting choice that Harley would make to for the, this quintessential classic American comp- company to book somebody who, I don't know, goes to England and talks about how he just hates this country and he's going to renounce his citizenship. And interestingly, nobody, nobody, I don't think he's renounced it, just like nobody who says they're going to renounce the citizenship actually, actually goes ahead and does that. But um, Harley has the right to book him and the band has the right to perform, I'm just curious as to whether you believe there will be a backlash because it does seem like an interesting dichotomy for the Harley Riders and for this sort of outspoken, overtly political band and a singer who, again, goes to England and talks about how he's going to renounce his citizenship. 855-616-1620. And I... I also, I mean, look, nobody has to buy tickets, so this this isn't like it's a surprise. I mean, people will make the decision, do you want to pay, do you want to see the band? My question is, do you think that there's going to be an issue here? Jeff, Harley riders with U.S. flags, their armed branch or division patches on their leather 
bad choice. I think this is a bonehead mistake by the festival promoters. Jeff, let's hope that more people find out or remember this Green Day stuff and don't show up. Harley is an American company. Um, they should not have done this booking. Jeff, you're absolutely right. Billy Joe Armstrong is a rabid lefty who's about as anti-American as they come. This is almost as bad as Elton John, um, Jeff, my take on Harley Fest is at least they announced who will be performing in advance. Now riders can make the choice whether or not to participate. I would imagine not too many Harley folks will be attending. Hopefully the dealership and bars have better options in entertainment that fits the likes of the riders. Well, that's what I think the question is. Jeff, they should have brought back Kid Rock instead. Um, Jeff, unlike Elton John, Green Day's music is more appealing to bikers. The bikers will overlook politics in my opinion. Huh. Jeff, having Harley Green Day there might be a little tone deaf of Harley, especially considering the uh, pretty patriotic crowd. Maybe they're appealing to a slightly younger riders who could be the less likely to be offended by Armstrong's politics. At least they're announcing the lineup ahead of time. Yeah, I think that's that's um smart. Uh, most of Jeff, most of my friends belong to um uh, Harley clubs like the Blue Knights and the Faithful Few, I don't see many of them attending a show put on by Green Day. Uh, Jeff, I'm ab- absolutely, I'm a Harley rider. I plan on going to the event, but I will never go to that concert. You couldn't pay me. Jeff, this is as dumb as Harley making electric bikes. What were they thinking? Um, all right, 855-616-1620. Let's uh let's talk to let's start with jane and mosquito jane you're first good afternoon hey good evening or good afternoon thank you for taking my call hi my comment is yes i think people they'll have less people there or they will leave and did they not learn anything from when they booked elton john was it for their 100th right Party, you know, it, he's a. I like his music. I like him. Would that be a first choice for a group of Harley people? Probably not. <laughs> so well, I well, well we know it wasn't. Okay. Yeah, yeah. we know. We, yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm trying to be nice here, but um, no, we know it I'm wasn't. Thinking, no, okay, Jane. I get it. No, thanks. Thanks for calling. I mean, I, I get it. No, it wasn't. It was it was a very very bad choice, and I guess the the, the question is, and some people are saying, okay, Green Day, maybe they're appealing to a, a younger type of rider. Although Green Day has been around for for a long time, um, I, I guess my my question is, is is the mixture? And look, and I, I understand a lot of people go to shows and, and they're able they, they separate the politics of the performers from from the performance. In this case, though. It's just when I, I think of, and maybe maybe I'm just stereotyping when I think of who the typical Harley rider is, but I guess I, I'm thinking the typical Harley rider is not going to relate to a performer that's in you know England last summer, and a, a, again, just talking about how he's going to renounce his citizenship and how America is such a you know blanked up country and all all that. I just and maybe maybe people don't care. Maybe the Harley riders aren't going to care. I don't know. Mike in Illinois. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you? I'm good. What do you think? I don't think you're stereotyping at all. The Harley rider has evolved. A lot of times it could be white-collar people that ride. But I do think a lot of them, most if not most, are very patriotic. And I don't think this is going to fly. Like the previous caller said, I don't believe they learned anything. 
I love Elton John. I love his music. He was not a good fit. Green Day, I'm glad you did a deeper dive into this because I didn't really know his politics. I've always liked their music. I don't own any mm-hmm. Green Day music, but I've always liked it. However, now that I know about him, um, I would not go see it. And I do ride, um, and Harley is going to be hearing from me via email. Interesting. Thanks for the call, Mike. I appreciate it. And I'm, look, I, I want people to say this topic. I am not encouraging people to boycott shows. I, I, don't, I don't do those, those type of things. I just, I, especially, you know, once I started really kind of following, it's, oh, that, that's yeah, Green Day. That's this Billy Joe Armstrong. And I, I started to remember, you know, the tirade he went on to when he was in London. And, and then, again, you kind of look at this, and it's it just seems to me to be a, a bad fit. Now, again, I'm not encouraging people to boycott. People will will decide whether they go or not. Jeff, I don't think people are going to sit down and examine the politics of every band. They're just coming into town, and they want to see a band with music uh, they like. They're here to have a good time. They're not going to research everybody in the band's thinking or stands on issues. They just want to party, welcome everyone to the great city of Milwaukee, and have a, a great time. Um, yeah. Um I, and that's that may very well, you know, be that may very well be the case. Jeff, as soon as I heard who was playing, I tried to get tickets and I wasn't able to. They're sold out. Well, OK, we'll see how this all plays out as it gets a little bit closer. And again, I, people decide that they want to go. That That's absolutely fine. I will be curious to see what the attendance is. Jeff, to answer the question, no, I don't have time to listen to him whine. <laughs> That's uh, in quotation marks. Beer drinkers of southeastern Wisconsin, beer drinkers of Wisconsin, beer drinkers of the country, beer drinkers of the world, because we are out on that World Wide Web with our streaming. I'm curious as to your reaction because I uh, to this to this story because I, I understand that I, I might be just just old school on this lakefront brewery right lakefront brewery which has been I, I think you can make an argument that they weren't the first craft brewery to kind of hit it big in the Milwaukee area but they've certainly had staying power you know they've got that great facility and they've got the great tours and things like that and and they make some really really good beers Lakefront Brewery has just announced that they are doing away with bottles of beer Uh, the way the local newspaper reports it is bottles of lakefront beer will soon be a thing of the past after the Milwaukee brewery announced a move to cans as a way of being environmentally friendly and more economically efficient. And the lakefront president, um, Russ Klisch, says, it's just what consumers are asking for. All of the data across the country in Wisconsin shows people prefer cans. Also, Cans are easier to store and to ship, so it just makes sense to change, make the change right now. Now, there's no question that cans are easier to store and they are easier to ship than bottles and that they take up less shelf space. So that's why distributors like them as well. They go on to say that, um, look, here, here's, here is the, the deal. We are um, in the process of switching to, to cans. Um, we expect to have the switch to cans made by April, and with that amount of bottled beer that we have in storage, 
we're not expected to be any gaps in supply. Customers who want the last bottles of Lakefront should plan to buy the beer no later than March. Depending on demand, some of our offerings will run out faster than others, but we have planned with the current stock to have most of them run out around March or April, around the time we are making the switch. Okay, I want to discuss this because, see, I know, I, I understand why from the perspective of the brewers, switching to cans makes sense because it is more economical, it's easier to ship them, it's easier to store them. I think maybe cans might even have a longer shelf life and things like that. I, I get that. I guess my question that I want to discuss with you is the statement that consumers prefer cans to bottles. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Now, I have nothing against canned beer, okay? I, I, I get it. Hence the phrase, greatest thing since canned beer. My producer says where he comes from, they say it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. Well, I'm from Wisconsin. We say it's the greatest thing since canned beer. At the same time, I will tell you, if I am in a, a liquor store or a supermarket and I need to buy beer, my first choice is going to be to go to the bottles of beer. Now, I understand it's a little harder to carry. I, I get it. It's a little bit harder to store. But maybe it's just me. I prefer beer out of bottles than I do out of cans. 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. All right, let's talk about something really important here, and that is Beer in bottles versus beer in cans. And by the way, what Lakefront is doing is is not unusual in the industry. More and more brewers are switching from bottles to cans. So this, this is a, a trend, and it may be sometime in the not-too-distant future, it's going to be impossible to find you know bottles of beer. I just... I like the way beer tastes out of bottles better than cans. 855-616-1620. And I'm sorry to see Lakefront. And I love, I, I love, you know, some of the brews that, that Lakefront comes up with. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I, for example, the Lakefront IPA, I think is as good an IPA as there is. That's my opinion. Um, especially for one that's, you know, kind of readily available. But I'm going to miss the Lakefront IPA in bottles. 855-616-1620. We discuss in just a moment. 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. Okay, I, I, we, we, have, we have stirred something up here. and I, I Okay, so if you're just tuning in, Lakefront Brewery announces that they're, they're doing away with bottles of beer. So what they're going to do is, is all their beer is going to be produced in, in cans starting in, in the next month or so. And, and they say there's two reasons. One is that cans are easier to store and ship. I, I get that. I, I understand it. That makes sense. It's easier to get to the distributors. It's, it's easier. It take, the cans take up less room on store shelves. So I understand the business perspective. But the other thing they say is uh, this is what consumers are asking for. I don't believe it. I guess I just I don't believe it. I think if you're asking me, does beer if you're drinking out of a can or a bottle, does beer taste better out of a bottle? I don't even think it's I don't even think it's close to <laughs> but but that's that's just me. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Okay. Um let's see. Jeff, I understand their point of view, but I would respect them more if they were just honest. All beer people that I know have a preference for 
bottles. Um, yeah, I, I've got that. Um, Jeff, as my German grandpa often said, I was brought up on a bottle. Beer tastes better in a bottle. That's why I buy bottle beer. Jeff, I prefer beer out of a bottle as well, except when it comes to Heineken, which is one of my favorite years ago, one of my favorites. Um, somebody says, Jeff, can you imagine drinking Corona out of a can? No, you got to drink Corona with a out of a of a bottle. Jeff, I agree with you. I prefer beer in bottles, and lately I've been refusing to buy beer in cans. To me, I think there's a bad taste that comes out of cans. Now, look, I, I I love beer one way or the other, so I'm not. If if the choice is if I want a Lakefront IPA and I can only get it in in a can, I'm going to drink it in a can. Jeff, not this consumer. I'll take a bottle over a can every time, with the exception of places that might not allow in glass containers. Um. Yeah, Jeff, I prefer bottles for sanitary reasons and taste. With aluminum, I think of them sitting in a warehouse and the can exposed to all sorts of elements. Huh. Um, let's see. Jeff, you're correct. It's better in bottles. Next best is pouring a can into a chilled glass. Okay, you're, and I'm getting swamped with texts, and I, it, it's almost unanimous uh, that people prefer th- their beer in bottles than cans. And again, that's I, it, it's fine. I get why businesses are doing it, but... I just refuse to believe this premise that beer, that consumers in general prefer their beer out of cans. Now, if the choice is no beer, I'm drinking can. I'm drinking or, or cans or no beer. I'm going to drink the cans. Let's start with um, let's start with Jonathan in Milwaukee. Jonathan, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey Jeff, uh, great topic. Um, you are, I by the way, can. you are my contra. You are, by the way, my contra indicator because I have. Dozens and dozens and dozens, and I think you're you're that that one on the other side. So I want to take you first. <laughs> oh, all right, appreciate it. Yeah, no, and, and I'll explain. Um, I prefer cans simply from a recycling standpoint. Just much easier to recycle. You can crush them if you only have limited space, like in your recycling bin or like your recycling garbage can. Just makes more sense to have cans. And the second thing is, have you ever chipped your tooth on a bottle? It's horrible. You know, uh, you, you just don't run that risk with a can. You know what I mean? And, and the third thing and, and final thing, um, you know, if you go to beaches and lakes and things yeah. like that, like in a lot of parks, you just can't bring bottles in. They just don't want yep. them because it's dangerous. So, yeah. Yeah. No, those are all, Jonathan, thanks. for Those those are all those are all fair, fair objections. And, and you're right. If you go to, like, if you've got a swimming pool, if you live in a condominium complex where there's a swimming pool, an apartment complex where there's a swimming pool, your chances are you're not going to bring you're not going to be allowed to bring glass in. So I, I, I appreciate that those are the arguments there, and that's why, I mean, there, there's certainly a role for cans. I, I get it. I'm not arguing that we shouldn't have cans. I'm just saying from a pure taste perspective, enjoying the beer, I, I think beer tastes a lot better out of bottles. Mike in Bayview. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, Jeff, they always said that if you, if you drink if you drink uh, beer out of the can, they said the toilet seat's going to hit you on, on the head. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so you're so you're a bottle guy. You're a bottle. A Mike, bottle thanks for the call. Boy. Yeah. Got yeah. it. All right. Okay. Tony in Union Grove. Tony, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. How you doing? I'm good. It's definitely a bottle. No matter what, no matter what the brand is, it definitely tastes better out of a bottle. Yeah, I, and again, I'm, I'm not. I, again, if the choice is 
you're, you're someplace and you can only take a can. Okay, I, I, I mean, I'm still going to drink my beer out of the can then. But given you know everything, I just I, I, I don't know. I don't know if, know if I think it tastes fresher or crisper or whatever. But given the choice, if I'm in a bar or something, I will always order a bottle as opposed to to a can. No question about it. I think you said the right word too, crisper. It's definitely crisper out of a bottle. Yeah, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Uh, let, oh, the, the texts are just pouring in. Uh, Jared says, bottles taste better. Um, yeah, the, uh, let's see. Uh, Jeff, I'm currently in Florida drinking a Yingling from a green bottle. Yingling is a very, very popular beer in Florida. It's kind of, it's brewed in Pennsylvania. I usually buy bottles when I'm at home in Franklin. And by the way, it's 77 and sunny where I am. Thank you for sharing. Jeff, flat out, I prefer bottled beer to beer in a can. Uh, and just, just so you know, and, and sometimes people say, well, you only read the texts that agree with you or, or no, no, this one is, this I am just I am reading these texts as they come in because I would say of the texts, and if the question is, do you prefer beer in bottles or do you prefer it in cans? I, we're, we're talking we're talking ninety five plus percent. Um, Jeff, there's clearly it's clearly generational. There aren't twenty five year olds calling in and saying that they have to drink it out of a bottle. Well, I'm not saying that people have to drink it out of a bottle. I'm just saying that comparatively, if you give me the choice between a bottle and a can. I'm tasting, I'm taking the bottle. Jeff, absolutely, beer tastes better and is enjoyed more out of a bottle. Um, Let's see. Uh, Jeff, if that caller's recycling bin is full of bottles before it's collected, he needs to attend some meetings. (laughs) That's it. Jeff, bottles don't work around a swimming pool, and they don't work when it comes to boating and camping. But having said that, I do prefer beer in a bottle. Yeah, there um, there will be times that I'll go to... You, you, I'll, I'll go to events where yeah, it just it's it's easier to take the beer in the cans, and I appreciate the convenience of cans. I appreciate that they do stay colder a little bit longer and things like that. Although most of the people who I know are beer drinkers, yeah, you, you, once they pop that top, you don't have to you know worry about um, that. Uh, let's see. I absolutely love the first drink out of a can of ice cold beer, such as on ice in a cooler. To me, that is summer, and it is the best drink of beer there is. I hate the tall boys. Classic 12-ounce ice cold PBR, please. Let's talk to um, let's talk to uh, James on the south side. James, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, Jeff, uh, I think uh, I'd rather have bottled in uh, cans, and the reason why is because all of a sudden in, in cans or you know, cans of beer or cans of fruit or whatever else, you can taste the metal taste as it goes on. It's been around for a while. You can taste um, it. In yeah, there. yeah. No, no. Thanks for the call, James. I mean, that's why my my uh, one of my very very closest friends, who is both a bourbon and a beer aficionado, and who's my who's my wing. I'm his wingman when we go to some of these events. I mean, he's one of these guys who's always. He's always checking, like, okay, th- this particular type of beer has come out, and he's always, like, checking the freshness thing as, as to when it was canned or when it was um, bottled as well. Jeff, um, I think beer is enjoyed more out of a tap in a glass. Um, there are – I guess it, it sort of depends. I, I'm, I, the, the conversation of do I prefer tap beer – to like beer in a bottle kind of depends on where the place is and how fresh the beer is 
and things like that. Jeff, um, there's not a master brewer in the world that would tell you to drink it out of a can versus glass. Um, yeah, Jeff, I think everyone knows beer tastes better out of a glass bottle than a can. What could people possibly be talking about? Sandy and Stevens Point. Sandy, you're in WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hello, Jeff. I think you need a woman's perspective on this topic. Okay. All right. A female beer so drinker. I Bring def- it on. I bottle beer all the way. And there's a definite difference difference of taste between bottle and can and draft. And if I'm told I'm only um, my only option is can, I'll, I'll have to stick with the can, but I'll take that can and pour it into a, a beer glass because I just don't care for the can taste or it just is a, a significantly different taste to me. So I think yeah, uh, so you notice, you notice a, a difference. Mistake. You notice, totally. you notice a difference. Yeah, I do too. In, in, totally. in most, I do too in most, in most beers. And, and again, I, I appreciate why there's the movement to cans. I, they're, they're easier. They take up less space. The, the industry probably likes it. My guess is it's probably cheaper to do all these things. I, I get it. I just, and that was the point of this topic, I just, I refuse to believe that the majority of people say that they think beer tastes better out of a can than a bottle. I just don't believe most people think that way. No, and I think that the Lakefront Brewery should be looking at, you know, what tastes better and not what, what is more economical. Yeah, well, thanks for the call. Well, I, pre- I mean, again, in, in, in fairness to Lakefront, and thanks for the call, Sandy, I mean, and I don't, I, I love Lakefront Brewery. I don't mean to pick on, on Lake, and I love their product. I don't mean to pick on them. They're a great Milwaukee brewery that's had incredible success. What they're doing is becoming is what is becoming more and more of the industry standard. And I think what what's happening is they're they're getting pressure from a number of sources, including, like I say, the I think the retailers. There there is a huge fight. Who was I talking to? Oh, I ran into somebody the other night who um, is was one of the principal investors in a local craft brewery. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to name it, but, but it, it's a local craft brewery. And we were talking about this, and he was telling me how the business got started. They've been around for like 15 years. And he, he was just telling me how difficult it is on the distribution side for the, for these breweries and, and how they're they're just you know you fight for shelf space you fight for space in the supermarkets you fight for space in the liquor stores and obviously you you have a much better chance of getting your product onto the shelves if if it doesn't take up as as much space and i think that's what's what's driving a lot of the movement to cans and i understand he was just he was also telling me that if it wasn't for like their tap room he didn't think that he wasn't sure you know that the brewery would have made it but but it, it's successful and it's doing all that stuff but from a marketing and a business perspective for that aspect of your brewery that is trying to get the products on the store shelves cans are a far are just much more attractive to those grocers or the liquor store operators who have a choice of a million different kinds of of beer for example in this case and so it's like all right you know we will carry your beer but you know you're in these, these weird kind of bottles and it takes up space having said all that i'm still i'm still a bottle beer guy and i will defend that to the day i die Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Well, we have had an eclectic two hours so far. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. It's so funny because when, when I, I, 
This is a show about stuff that I think is interesting to me, and hopefully it will be interesting to you. So it's always amusing to me when I, I get I get texts from people who are saying, you know, it's you're, you're just talking about too much serious stuff, and, and you need to do lighter things. And then we'll do some lighter topics, and I'll get things. Oh, how dare you? I mean, why are you doing all this lighter stuff, this frivolous stuff? Don't you know that there's all these issues going on in the world? And my response to this is always, well, after doing this in this market for you know, 25 years full-time and 28 years, you know, full or part-time. I, I just, I, I like to kind of mix it up, and sometimes it's going to be really heavy stuff, and sometimes it's going to be lighter stuff, and sometimes we're going to talk about the issues that are really important, and sometimes, you know, maybe less significant, but still a conversation that you can have over the dinner table. If you're sitting down and saying, hey, I was listening to that guy on the radio, and Wagner was talking about how, you know, the beer in bottles, and, you know, hey, I think he's right, or, you know, I'm never going to give up my cancer, whatever, but we, we like to have a little bit of fun, and this hour is going to be another eclectic sort of show. First of all, let me give you a little bit of, of breaking news, and it is very, very good news. Uh, the Assembly in Wisconsin has just gotten done voting and has passed with um, overwhelming 74 yes votes, including 12 Democrats, has passed the referendum question on the constitutional amendment regarding bail. If you haven't been following this, in Wisconsin, one of the reasons, not the exclusive reason, but one of the reasons why we have so many people who are released on stupid low bails that go out and commit crimes, again, is because in Wisconsin, under the, the state constitution, the only thing judges are supposed to consider in setting bail is whether or not somebody is, is going to show up. Well, I come from the federal system where you know bail is viewed as there, there's two things you look at. You look at flight risk. And you look at whether the person is a danger to the community. And then you set conditions of release uh, accordingly. And the the idea, now look, I mean, I understand that if you have somebody who has, for example, a, a lengthy criminal record, and if they're convicted of a crime, you might be able to argue that, hey, they're going to go away for a long time, so that gives them more incentive to run. But that's a very indirect way of dealing with this. The amendment that has now passed two consecutive houses of the legislature, two consecutive sessions, will put a constitutional amendment question on the ballot this April. And that question will, I'm going to paraphrase it now, but will ask whether the state constitution should be changed to allow judges to consider, beyond just simply risk of flight, to allow them to consider dangerousness to the community. And that's essentially what they're going to be asking. It passed in the last session of the legislature. It is now passed in this session. And so it will go to us, the voters. Tony Evers can't veto it. And if this is passed by the voters in April, and I believe it's going to be passed overwhelmingly, you will have a major change in state law, which will give judges more discretion in deciding whether or not to release dangerous people or at least maybe they give have more discretion to say, okay, we need higher bails or we need additional conditions like people taking responsibility or whatever. It is a very, very long overdue change. 
And I, I want to say congratulations to a number of the legislators who have been pushing this. Um, State Representative Cindy Ducal for, Ducal, for example, has been working on something like this for, for seven years. And finally, it is coming to fruition. I think it's a constitutional amendment. To me, some votes are difficult. Some votes are easy. When you go to vote in April, this is an easy vote. You vote yes on the constitutional amendment. And my guess is probably 70 or 75 percent of of the Wisconsin populace will vote yes on this. There's really, in my opinion, no reason to vote no. So that's the that's the good news. It's the breaking news. The Senate overwhelmingly passed this this referendum question on on Tuesday. The Assembly has now passed it. It goes to the voters, and if the voters end up doing the right thing, and I believe we will end up doing the right thing, you're going to have the constitutional amendment. So it's very, very good. Okay, so that's a serious thing. Let us, I, I want to I do another sort of lighter topic, because in the last segment, we had a lengthy conversation about, about cans versus bottled beer. And if you weren't listening to it, I encourage you to go back and listen to it on the podcast, because it was kind of fun. My point of view is these brewers that say that they're getting rid of the bottles because consumers are telling them they want that, that that's just not true. They're getting rid of them because it might make economic sense, and I understand and respect that, but, but I, I think beer tastes better out of bottles. There is an ongoing dispute among people, and it kind of goes back to, you know, who is more attractive, Ginger or Marianne, giving the, the old uh, Gilligan's Island reference. All right, there is a huge battle involving Pepsi and Coca-Cola. For years, American family feel, and I, I'm going to be really upfront with this, I'm a Coke guy, I'm a Coca-Cola guy. I drink, uh, when, when I'm drinking soda, it's either like diet root beer or it's it's diet Coke. Okay, so those, those are the two things that I drink, kind of depending on whether I want the caffeine in, in diet Coke or not. So I, I will, I, I don't want to overstate this, but I'm not going to say I never drink Diet Pepsi, but if given a choice, if I say, hey, I'd like a, I want this and I want a Diet Coke, and they say, well, we only have Pepsi products, I will typically say, that's okay, I'll take it, but I, I'm not happy with it. I, I much prefer the taste of Diet Coke. Now, that, that's just me. For years and years at Miller Park, that American family field, they only serve Pepsi products. And I have to admit that on those occasions where I I didn't want to drink beer or something, I was really struggling because I just flat out don't care for the Pepsi products. And so I was really thrilled last year when they made the switch, and and now they've got Coke Coke products. And I I just, candidly, you know, it makes me more inclined to, like, have a soda or something because I, I like Diet Coke. I bring this up because, all right, here's the story, USA Today. Uh, Culver's is in the process of getting rid of Pepsi. Culver's is switching to Coca-Cola products at its restaurant. Company spokesman confirmed uh, that the move is in progress. It's going to take time for the company's nearly 900 restaurants located in 26 states to make the switch. Um, But they say they are in the process of doing this. They're declining to say why they're going with Coke over Pepsi, and they're declining to say when it's accepted, expected to be completed, but, but they are moving from Coke to Pepsi. Our number, 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. My response to this, one word, hallelujah. 
I look, I, I love Culver's. I'm not really a fat much of a fast food guy anymore, but I love the fact that you go to McDonald's, for example, you, you've got Coke products. I love the fact that now at Culver's, you're going to have Coca-Cola products. I love the fact that at American Family Field, they have switched to Coca-Cola products. I don't, don't have anything personally against the Pepsi products. I just don't think they're anywhere near as good. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Culver's moving to Coca-Cola products. Good news, bad news. And where do you come down on the Ginger versus Marianne debate? Coke or Pepsi? And why? We discuss in just a moment. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, we are stirring things up. Jeff, I'm thrilled. Diet Coke is so much better than Diet Pepsi. Jeff, yay, Coke at Culver's. I most definitely prefer Coca-Cola over Pepsi. I would rather have a white soda if Coca-Cola is not available. Don't like RC Cola or any of the other off brands. Jeff, I might be part of a shrinking minority, but I've always preferred Pepsi products to Coke products. And years ago, when the Midwest was mostly Pepsi country, I was frustrated when I couldn't find it much in other areas that were mostly Coke country. Now, I, I don't know, again, why Culver's is making the move that to, to Coke. I mean, I don't know if it's because they think that's where customer preference is. I don't know whether Coke is, you know, making a better financial deal. I, I don't know, um, you know, what the purpose of it is. I just know that I'm I'm a Coke guy. Jeff, Diet Pepsi and Ginger. I could stay on that island forever. Um, let's see. Jeff Culver's, I think this is bad news. I truly prefer Pepsi products. By the way, though, Marianne gets my vote. I thought she was kind of a down-to-earth kind of girl. Uh, Pepsi for me, Coke always, um, I think it's too acidic for my tastes. Jeff, 99 times out of 100, I have a Mountain Dew when I go to Culver's. I think this is a sad day. To me, Jeff, it's regular Coke in bottles or fountains. Um, Jeff, I drink Coke Zero and usually nothing else. I think Pepsi is way too sweet. Yeah, I do too. I, I Again, Diet Pepsi. I, I, don't, I don't drink sugared sodas anymore, but Diet Pepsi, way too sweet. Um, the texter also says that Marianne is, is their preference as well. All right, uh, let's start with Scott in Waukesha. Scott, you're on WTMJ. Absolutely in favor of Coca-Cola. I actually wrote letters to Culver's and said, I don't go there, which I don't, because they have Pepsi products. When I go to a restaurant, if they have Pepsi products, I'll either order a seltzer if they have it available, or I'll get an iced tea or something. I just don't like Pepsi. Why? I mean, it's, I, and I know that's a tough fit question, um, but is there something in particular? I think, like I, I think if... I think it's too sweet, and I think the Coca-Cola has more seltzer in it or more bubbles or whatever you want to say. Okay. I just prefer the Coke. Okay, good enough. Thanks, Nicole. And again, it, it's, there's, no, there's no right or wrong answer to this. It, it's just I, I will tell you the trend appears to be the places it used to be Pepsi. And again, I don't know if it's financial. It might be that the, the Coke distributors are coming in and, I would imagine Culver's in 26 states with all the different franchises that they have. I mean, I would imagine Culver's would be a, a pretty a pretty big client to end up, you know, being able to get nearly not 900 restaurants, just like the, the deal. An American Family Field would be good, uh, would be huge. So, I mean, it, it could 
it, I, I'm sure there's an economic component that goes into this as well. But I'm I'm glad. Cindy and Grafton. Cindy, you're on WTMJ. Hi there, Jeff. I'm a first time caller. Oh, thank you. This Hi, is what motivated I, you to pick up the phone. Great. <laughs> oh my! Oh my gosh! I love Coke. Um, so I'm super excited that Culver's is making the switch over to Coke. Um, and and I wanted to ask you, so I heard you say you prefer Diet Coke, but have you ever tried right. Coke Zero? I have, and I have, and I prefer Diet Coke to that. Are you a Coke Zero girl? I am. Yeah, I love it. I what tried do you, it, um, I want to yeah. say, excuse me, sometime in November, and... Since I've had Coke Zero, that's my preference now. Okay, I you know I I've had it I have had it on occasion, um, and I guess it's it, it just I've always thought I preferred Coke I, I preferred Diet Coke, and may, maybe it's because I thought Coke Zero also tasted a little too sweet for me. But I'm willing to give it another chance. Again, the the, the bottom line is, is I, I can't I can't have the sugar. So and you know and it's funny you know I don't know how you are, Cindy, but it's funny if I were ever every once in a while Sprecher root beer. I love I love root beer and I love Sprecher root beer and every once in a long while I will treat myself to a regular Sprecher root beer not one of the diet ones and it's it's so good but it's so sweet. If I were to ever have like a, a yeah. regular Coke, I'd go, "Man, I can't believe how sweet this stuff is." So, I guess it's all what you get used to. Mhm. So thanks for the call, Cindy. I appreciate it. And call back again. Love to have first-time callers here. Dave in Muskego. Dave, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, I'm all about the Coke. You know what they say, happy wife, happy life. She loves Coke. <laughs> I like your idea. I like the root beer. I'm not the root beer. So the old dad's root beer or something like that, right. that'd be great. But, again, she's about the Coke. And I really don't <laughs> care either way, personally. But uh, you yeah. know what? Keep her happy. I'm good with it. I understand, Dave. I, I think that's I think that's that's very very good advice. Yeah, I um, I, I'm. It, it's interesting. I'm talking about Pepsi products. I I just my my go to. I, I like root beer, and again, I I don't. I it's very very difficult. Uh, and thanks a lot for the call. I appreciate you joining us, Dave. It's very very difficult to find um, to find diet root beer. And the the diet root beer that I like, uh, unless you find you can find these like really off brands, but the diet root beer I like is A and W's diet root beer, and that's that turned that's a Pepsi product. So I I do I I, I so I'm 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 certainly hoping Pepsi doesn't go out of business because I like their A and W diet root beer. Um, let's see, Charlie in Germantown, Charlie, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon, Jeff. Wondering if you have ever taken the Pepsi. Wondering if you have ever taken the Pepsi Challenge. Back in the late seventies, early eighties, Pepsi had a promotion where they would pour you a glass of Coke and a glass of Pepsi, and you wouldn't know which was which. And they asked you which you would prefer. My wife was a devout Coca Cola drinker. She failed the Pepsi Challenge. She couldn't tell the difference between Coke and Pepsi when they were disguised and she didn't know which was which so i suggest you have somebody pour you a glass of each and you take the pepsi challenge okay that i think fair i mean thanks to call charlie fair fair enough um i think i'm I'm going to be able to pass that because i just i I just noticed that there i i noticed you know, all things being equal, I, I noticed that there is a difference. I think that the diet Pepsi in particular is 
is sweeter. I also think it has a, a an aftertaste that that Coke Diet Coke doesn't have. But but again, that that's just me. And I, I certainly notice when I'm out in restaurants or like like I say that this up until last year at American Family Field when I'd order a soda there, you know, you, you'd ask, hey, I'll, I'll have a Diet Coke, and they say, no, we just have Pepsi products. Okay, I'll take the Diet Pepsi. I could certainly from the fountain tell the difference um, between like then and, and now. But regardless. It's it is the ginger and Marianne debate. I understand, and you know people have their preferences and all. But it is interesting to me that uh, there there are changes afoot. And if you go to Culver's, not necessarily today or tomorrow, but they are phasing out Pepsi in favor of Coke. Um, their root beer, which I know a lot of people love, they're going to continue to offer that. So uh, you, you're still always going to be able to get that, regardless of whether it's Diet Pepsi or Diet Coke. People stir it up. Ask them whether they prefer paper straws or plastic straws. Now, I, see, I don't even, see, I don't even think you can have, I don't even think you can have an argument uh, about, uh, an argument about, you know, that. I mean, it's clearly. I mean, I understand. I love the planet, and I understand that you people go to the paper straws because it's supposed to be more, um, more eco-friendly, and, and I get that. But paper straws, give me a break. Plastic straws, always. <laughs> We've uh, this. This has been one of those days where just my producer was saying, "Well, we've we've really just had jammed phone lines and the, the text lines just exploded." Well, that's that's what we try to do here on the Wagner program on a daily basis. I, I might talk about this more tomorrow, and it's sort of a different context because there's something I want to discuss with you before the program ends. But if you grew up around here, as as I did. You can remember a, a number of the big shopping centers in uh, Southridge and, and Northridge, but Mayfair and Brookfield Square. But before there was any of those, there was Capitol Court. Now, the old Capitol Court, it, it, we're talking about like 60th and Capitol, uh, essentially. Um, and I'm, I, t- I mean, I remember when we, we moved here when I was, uh, you know, seven eight years old and i mean i remember capitol court there was a big gimbal store that was there there was a boston store there i mean capitol court was one of the places that you you went to shop i remember in the summer they used to have this like mini amusement park called funland i think that was set up fun town something like that that was set up like in the parking lot that had a lot of the the kind of rides you see when you go to the state fair and stuff like that they were famous for having the the cookie cookie house that was there, and, and I know that's been sort of transplanted. But but Capitol Court was was a thriving area. Uh, there were movie theaters that were there, and I mean, I remember this was a place that when I was a kid, you kind of hang out, hung out at, and and Capitol Court fell on on hard times. Now it's been reimagined. They they call it the Midtown Shopping Center, a big big facility, four hundred eight thousand square feet, and the company that owns this. Is is now looking to sell. Now they've got there's a pick and save. There's a Foot Locker, Planet Fitness. There's a Pizza Hut there. Uh, there used to be a Walmart building that was sold to a family storage operation. There was a Lowe's that about four years ago was converted to industrial space. But but here's the interesting aspect of the story. If you again remember how thriving Capitol Court was in in the day, put that in quotation marks. So here's the deal. The the mid the Midtown shopping center which is capital court the old capital court was owned it's owned by this new york based company all right the company purchased this 
for $47.15 million in 2014. $47.15 million in 2014. The, the story that's out there today is they've, they've put, they put it on the block, and it's going to – there's going to be a digital auction for people to bid on the shopping center on February 27th. Okay, so th- that's all well and good. But, but here's what I find to be the most interesting thing about the story. Now, keep in mind that in general, we've seen real estate – uh, appraisals appreciate. I mean, that's that's one of the reasons you typically get involved in real estate because you think that the value is is going to go up. So, 2014, this outfit out of New York buys buys the Midtown Shopping Center, Capitol Court. They buy it for 47.15 million dollars. 47 million. All right. Now, I want you to think of a number that they are now putting it on sale for, the, the opening bid. Now, it's a bidding process, so I'm not saying that it's, it's going to go for this, but, but their initial bid, now $47 million bucks in 2014. They are now selling it in 2023, so eight, nine years later. What number would you think they were putting this up for auction, at least the starting number? Like I say, it's an auction, So, but if, let's say, somebody comes in and bids, this amount, nobody else bids. Presumably, they they would sell it for that amount. So, okay, they paid forty seven million. What would you think? Fifty million, sixty million, seventy million. Well, if you thought that, you'd be wrong. If you thought forty million, you would be wrong. If you thought thirty million, you would be wrong. If you thought twenty million, you would be wrong. If you thought ten million, you would be wrong. Nope. According to the local newspaper, this this the Midtown Shopping Center, Capital Court, that was purchased for forty seven point one five million dollars in twenty fourteen is going to go on the block at the end of uh, next month for seven million dollars. Now, again, maybe they're going to get a little bit more of that, but seven million dollars. That's that's not a good return on the investment. And I I guess, I mean, maybe there's a lot of factors that go into why it is being sold. You buy something, but I would say this, you buy something for $47 million and you sell it for $7 million. That is typically not a good business practice. And when it comes to real estate, while I understand real estate values fluctuate, it's it's not a positive comment on, at least whether it's location or whatever, but if you got $7 million lying around and you're interested in real estate and you believe that the, the current political figures in Wisconsin and in Milwaukee are willing to turn areas around and you got $7 bucks, it, it might be a good deal. But former Capitol Court, just think how thriving that was. $47 million eight years ago. It's going on the block. $7 million can at least get you in the bidding. And I'm not even sure anybody's going to bid on it at $7 million. <laughs> Lots of people want to weigh in on Capitol Court. Jeff, Capitol Court, built by Schuster's in the 1950s, later absorbed by Gimbel's in the 60s, was Milwaukee's first shopping center. It thrived until when in the 80s? Northridge, ironically, took away most of its business. 
Uh, Jeff, I grew up on the northwest side of Milwaukee. Capitol Court was a mainstay for my family to go to for shopping, the kooky Christmas house, yeah, the kooky cookie Christmas house, etc. Many home videos show us there during my childhood. Northwest side of Milwaukee was phenomenal and safe to grow up in in the 60s and 70s. Doesn't surprise me that uh, the shopping center has lost so much of its value. Boils down to one issue, safety. People do not feel safe in that particular area. Well, you know, it's it's just... I guess it just struck me that this is it struck me that this is the that you you can lose that much money. Now, somebody's text and says, well, you know, people make bad real estate deals all the time. Yeah, I I understand that. I understand things go up and prices go down. It's just kind of interesting to me that in a time when real estate generally goes up or at least stays the same, you have an an outfit that pays 47 million is now willing to unload something for 7 million. Not, not good business. Before the program ends, I wanted to double back on something we talked about a week or two ago, because to me, it's one of these decisions that gets made. And then later on, we, we come to realize it is a very, very bad decision and nobody's ever asked the questions before we, we do this. I, I'm, I'm talking about this decision to build this youth prison in Milwaukee. Now, I think over the last several years, everybody is aware there's a, a huge controversy. Right now, when, when juveniles commit crimes, it is almost impossible to get these juveniles sent off to secure detention. But when they do... They go to Lincoln Hills, which is like north of Wausau. It's about three and a half hours away from north of Milwaukee. And the reality is the majority of people that go to Lincoln Hills are from southeastern Wisconsin in general and Milwaukee in particular. And so if the idea of, of juvenile detention is to try to rehabilitate kids, one of the things that you want to do is you want to make it easy for family members and stuff to, to visit. And that, that makes sense. I, I think that you can, you can argue the family members were part of the reasons the kids are screwed up in the first place. But, it, but it's good if mom or dad or the brothers want to be able to visit, the brothers or sisters want to be able to visit, it, it's good that, that they have ease of access. And if you've got to travel three and a half hours to make a visit, it becomes more difficult. So it makes sense to me that if if most of the people that are going to get sent to these juvenile detention facilities are coming from southeast Wisconsin in general and in the Milwaukee area in particular, it makes sense to to build a new youth prison closer. So I, I'm all I'm all in favor of that. Now the location that they have chosen is on the northwest side of Milwaukee, just north of Good Hope Road and just west of Seventy Sixth Street. Um, it, it's in an area where it used to be back when we used to have the, the DMV emission places where you'd go to it, it's, it's there so that they're, they're going to build it in this, this particular area. The common council has now signed off on it. The mayor is going to sign off on it. So that's the final local legislative action needed to move the project forward. There's still a couple things that the state has to do, but this is, this is moving forward. I, you know, we, we've talked before about whether this is the ideal location or not. Some people have suggested, you know, maybe Northridge would, would be a better site. To me, that's not the real issue. The, the issue that I think still needs to be discussed isn't the fact that they're building the youth prison. It's that they're building it so damn small. It, it's going to be a 32-bed facility, a 32-bed facility. Look, 
part of the problem that we have in in southeastern Wisconsin with juveniles is that juveniles who should be taken off the streets aren't. One of the reasons, if you talk to juvenile judges, one of the reasons they say that doesn't happen is because there's just no place to put them. And so there's people who I think even some of the most liberal-minded juvenile justice um, advocates would say, okay, this person belongs off the street, but we've got limited space. There, there's only so many places you can put them, and you know you, you can't send the, the juvenile car theft thief who, who's stolen 50 cars and keeps getting caught, well, we can't send them to secure detention to punish them because we, we've got the, the, the 16-year-olds that were tried as, were judged delinquent, were treated as juveniles, that were out there carjacking people and you know, sticking guns in people's faces. They'll tell you you don't have, don't have the space. And that is a valid point up to a certain point. I mean, I, there, I understand that if you're in a situation where you've got to prioritize this and kind of do a triage and say, okay, well, sure, this person should be taken off the street, but if I put, if I send this kid to the detention facility, what am I going to do with the next kid coming up who's done something arguably worse? So I, I get that. I'm sympathetic to it. But that's why it is, what is the word I'm looking for? Insane. It is insane to build a new facility in Milwaukee County and build it this small. I mean, that's, you know, we should be looking at a space, we should be looking at triple that, at, at least, to give the judges the latitude to say, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to send, this person needs to be off the street. And rather than trying to balance which one of these juvenile delinquents is worse um, it, it should be both of these juvenile delinquents need to be taken off the street, and, and I don't want to have to worry about, gee, you know, if I put if I put Johnny in, what am I going to do with with Joey when Joey, you know, commits something even worse? You need more room to build a facility like this that is, I think, all of us would agree, is incredibly undersized. Makes no sense to me at all. This is perhaps a once in a generation option to you know build a facility that can can deal with this increasing problem we have with juvenile delinquents because because here's the reality and we talk about this on this program all the time that the problem with juvenile delinquents and juvenile criminals it's not like it was thirty or forty or fifty years ago it has changed. The juvenile delinquents, the people that are committing crimes, the 14 and 15 and 16-year-olds, who a lot of a lot of our progressively-minded friends don't want to see treated as adults and don't want to see them go off to adult prison, well, okay, even those people would agree, all right, you need some form of detention. But we, we just haven't adapted the system and, and the space, and we're still treating the juvenile offender of 2022 or 2023 like, hey, it's Opie and Mayberry, you know, who's thrown a rock through the window of Floyd's barbershop. That's not what's happening. The people who are committing these crimes are are just, they need to be taken off the street. And if you don't want to treat them as adults, fine, but you still have to have some degree of punishment. Who in their right mind would think that building a 32, we're going through all this angst and all this discussion, why don't you build it 
to deal with what you know is going to be the problem. Because I guarantee you, the day this thing opens, it's already going to be overcrowded. I guarantee you that, which raises the question that we should be asking now, why don't we build something that is going to house the number of juvenile delinquents that we know are going to need to be sent there? And like I say, I think 100 would be a good number to start with. You could make an argument that you could have two or 300, but let's start with 100. 32 beds? Give me a break. It's way, way, way undersized, period. Now, maybe that would mean you'd have to find a different location. Don't know about that. I just know it's nowhere near big enough.